Well, hi everyone. I'm Janet D. Recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia in New Jersey, soon to be in North Carolina, y'all. So I'm still not saying it right. Um, but anyway, happy to be with y'all tonight um, to talk about the chapter Working with Others, chapter seven in the big book, page 89. Um, this first line is something that I sometimes just start with when I'm working with someone new. Practical experience shows nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking, compulsive eating, as intensive work with other alcoholics, compulsive eaters. So they're telling me that I can have immunity, immunity from compulsive eating. What's immunity? Well, you know, we know like, right, in terms of COVID, a lot of us got the vaccine. So we would have immunity against a horrible virus. Um, we can have immunity against compulsive eating. You imagine that like being protected, but our book tells us we can be safe and protected. So it says, what ensures it? Intensive work with others, with other compulsive eaters. Well, okay, so what does that mean? I come around, I hear this, and then I go out and I start helping other compulsive eaters. Well, no, because step 12 tells us the requirements to work these, to help other people. It says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, these first 11 steps, then we try to carry this message to other compulsive eaters. So the criteria for working with others or sponsoring is what we say, which is guiding someone through the 12 steps, is having a spiritual awakening or a spiritual experience as a result of these steps. Okay, what is a spiritual experience? Well, it's defined a couple of places in the book. In the second appendix, it describes it as a personality change sufficient to overcome alcoholism or compulsive eating. That means I'm gonna be changed, not change myself because I didn't have the power to do that. And on page 25 of our big book, it defines a spiritual experience. And it, the words are just really beautiful. It says, the great fact is just this and nothing less. So this is what they want, nothing less, not just to be able to stick to a food plan. They say, basically, that's just God's opening act. This is what we want. A deep and effective spiritual experience, which revolutionizes our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows, and toward God's universe. The central fact of our lives today. So again, the central fact shifts, used to be food or myself is the absolute certainty that our creator has entered our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous, right? Book says the age of miracles is still with us. He, meaning God, has commenced to accomplish those things for us which we could never do by ourselves. So they're saying that I come in, I work the 12 steps, as a result, God basically rewires my heart and changes me so that it's almost like weeding a garden so that the illness of compulsive eating can't live there. And then if I wanna stay safe and protected, I have to go out and help others. And it tells us it works when other activities fail. Because of course there's some other activities I'm supposed to be doing. If I'm stealing, cheating, lying, um, 
and but I'm sponsoring eight people, I can't expect to be abstinent. So I have to do, you know, our books, right? 12, step 12 is we try to carry this message and practice these principles in all our affairs. The basic spiritual principles, honesty, integrity, self-sacrifice, putting the welfare of others before ourselves. So it says, okay, you've gone through the steps and you can do this. Um, it says you can help where other people can because they know, right? If I sit there and say, I used to do things. I used to spend the rent money on food. I used to walk the streets at two in the morning looking on, looking for food. I made myself throw up so much that I needed major surgery to repair my esophagus. You, you've done stuff like that. Maybe not exactly, but we all know. And we, there's this bond that we have. And it says, you can secure confidence where others have failed. Then it tells us, remember, they are very ill. And I think that's important to remember that people who are in the food um, are ill. They're not bad, which means we don't yell at them when, you know, if they go off their food plan, that would be like, you know, getting mad at someone who has cancer and their cancer cells multiply. Remember they're ill. And then it tells us this great promise. Life will take on new meaning. We'll get to watch other people recover, to see them help others. Nothing better than watching a sponsee work with her sponsee. To watch loneliness vanish, vanish, to see a fellowship grow up about you, to have a host of friends. They say, you must not miss it. We know you will not want to miss it. And I think, well, how do they know what I want, right? Well, in the illness, I wouldn't have wanted it. I wouldn't have wanted to take my time to help someone else. I wouldn't want to go to meetings, you know, make all these calls, all that stuff. No, but something changes and it tells us frequent contact with newcomers and each other is the bright spot of our lives, right? That something changes in our heart so that we crave helping other people. Not all the time. I don't want people to leave her saying, boy, I don't really crave it. Is there something wrong with me? I don't crave it all the time. There's sometimes I would rather just sit and read a book, but my better self craves it. And my better self is appearing more and more often the more I work these steps. And it says, okay, then it starts giving us some advice on how to help others. And it says, don't start out as an evangelist or reformer. So basically it's not my job to keep track of how many people I've helped. Like, oh, I sponsored X number of people and I got you know this many people through the step. No, it doesn't matter. My job is to do God's will and to carry the message. And whoever recovers or doesn't recover, that's between them and God. I don't get the credit if someone recovers and I don't get the blame if someone doesn't recover unless I've been mean or given them bad information. Then I may have a part. But again, it reminds us we can be uniquely helpful. And bottom of page 89, it says, cooperate never criticize. So what does that mean? Don't criticize. Well, for me, one important thing it means is, you know, now there seems to be like different factions of 12-step groups, people who, you know, say no one should ever have wheat or people who say no one should have a food plan. If God removes the obsession, you don't even need a food plan. By the way, I tried that, couldn't do it. Um, 
you know, but people have to, and, but if people do and it works for them, that's great. If there are people who say no one should ever have wheat, I don't believe that, that, you know, wheat is inherently evil. But if someone believes that, that's fine. We don't criticize, you know, what we have in common is that we were people whose lives were unmanageable, who couldn't stop eating. We got a relationship with God. We cleaned up our past and then life got better. That's it. Different food plans, different meetings. It doesn't matter. On page 90, it starts by giving us some advice about what to do when you find someone. First, it says, find out all you can about them. So before I start working with someone, I like to have what I call the Starbucks conversation because in the days before COVID, you know, I could meet someone at Starbucks and just talk. And we find out about them for, I want to know, are you married? What have you tried? What have you not tried? Um, what's, what's the particular quirk the illness has? Like, are you an exercise bulimic? Are you just a plain old, you know, compulsive eater? Um, do you believe in God? So all these different things I want to find out. And it tells us if he does not want to stop drinking, don't waste time trying to persuade him. So I think we have to be careful with that line because it's very easy to say, oh, he or she doesn't want to stop. Okay, well, or sometimes I'll ask someone like, what are you willing to do? And the person will say, well, I'm not willing to stop. I'm not willing to put down the food. And I'll say, really? Then like, why are you at an OA meeting? And they'll say, well, I'm still eating. So that must mean I don't want to stop. Not true at all. A person can have the most powerful desire to stop and be unable to, right on page 24, that we cross a line where the most powerful desire to stop is of absolutely no avail. Um, imagine someone with cancer and their cancer cells are multiplying and someone says, you must not want to stop because your cancer cells are still multiplying, right? That would just be mean. Um, but if someone says, you know what, I'm in the food. And so what I'll generally say, if someone says, well, I, I must not want to stop because I'm binging. I'll say, well, if your fairy godmother would come along and wave her magic wand and could strike you abstinent, would you tell her to go away? And people say, no, I, I would do it. And then it gets to, okay, are you willing to do the work? Um, but one time there was someone who said, yeah, you know what? I really just don't want to stop. And those people, it says, we're not supposed to convince them. We're not supposed to say, your life will be better. You'll be happier. You'll be healthier. No, it says, don't waste time trying to persuade him. You may spoil a later opportunity. How could we spoil a later opportunity? I'll tell you how. So let's say someone isn't really willing to go to any lengths, but I sponsor them because I want to, and I'm not careful in qualifying them. So the person will go along, not really doing the work, and then they won't get better and they'll ultimately leave. And let's say two years down the line, this person is desperate. She'll think, oh yeah, I tried that OA stuff and it didn't work. So we wanna be careful to the best of our ability, make sure the person really wants to stop. And it tells us, like still on page 90, 
sometimes it's wise to wait until the person goes on a binge. Why? Why will we? Why would we ever want to do that? And it's because the person will be depressed and willing. Again, if someone says, "Oh, I'm doing fine," you know, I just thought I'd work twelve steps. I mean, maybe, but usually those aren't the people who are willing to go to any lengths. Usually, it's the people who say. I got nothing else. I have no other options. So they say, again, ask him if he wants to quit for good and if he would go to any extreme to do so. And only after that can we start talking about recovery and what a person has to do. And they say, okay, if the person really doesn't want to, don't do anything. It says, the only thing you might do is place this book where he can see it, which says to me that if someone isn't ready to work the steps and do all the work, they are still welcome at meetings. They're still welcome to come. Anyone is always welcome. There, now there's a difference between being welcome at meetings and being qualified to be sponsored, right? If a person says, I'm not willing to go to any length, of course you're welcome at meetings. But no, according to page 58 of our book, you're not entitled to a sponsor. Um, so continuing on page 91, they say, call on him while he is still jittery. He may be more receptive when depressed because they're desperate. And they say, and tell your story so they can relate. Sometimes stories are funny. Sometimes it's serious. Um, I sometimes tell my story about how I was overseas and I was spending the weekend with a host family, a girlfriend and I were spending time there and the hostess had made this, you know, chocolate cake for the family, I guess, you know, and for the guests afterwards. And while they were napping, my friend and I ate the entire cake. And afterwards the hostess up and she's like, like, God, I could have sworn I baked a cake. And, you know, like the poor woman. And we just like, uh, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Um, but you know, that's the kind of stuff that we do, right? We don't care about other people. We just care about ourselves. So first the person needs to know that we understand what the illness is and that we know how to recover. And once the person, you know, we get a little rapport going, then we start talking about, we start talking about the solution and the problem. Now, again, it's a little different now because when they wrote this, there weren't all these 12-step meetings. So usually people come for a sponsor, they come into a meeting first and that's how we meet people. But when we get on the phone with them or we meet at Starbucks with them, it says, give, account, give an account, page 92, of the struggles you made to stop. Show him the mental twist, which leads to the first drink of a spree. That is so important for people to understand. That didn't happen to me for six, seven years. No one did that for me. What they did is they said, you're here, great. Um, and some for variation of, great, you've admitted you're powerless. Now here's a food plan, stick to it. Well, that makes no sense. How can you tell me I'm powerless and then tell me to stick to a food plan? And actually, that's not what our book says. To admit you're powerless and the admission will get you power. It doesn't say that. But we're just at the beginning and it says, show them the mental twist. So what's the mental twist? 
I like to think of it in terms of like a bridge that's broken. So normally my defense against doing something harmful is my memory, right? I'm about to go to the beach. And then I remember I went to the beach before I got this horrible sunburn because I didn't put on sunscreen. I'm going to put on sunscreen. The memory of the horrible sunburn protects me. Or anyone who's heard me talk knows that I have a severe cat allergy. Um, I don't go near cats. I don't go in pet stores. I don't go into people's houses if they have a cat. Because if someone invites me to her house, all of a sudden, my memory will scan the data points in my brain of when I was around a cat. And it's like, oh, you're around a cat and had an asthma attack. You're around a cat and got a sinus infection. You were around a cat and got really sick. And it'll generate a thought to run across the bridge to my conscious mind where I make decisions and to say, stop, danger. Cats are dangerous. I don't go near cats. That takes like a second. But with food, it didn't work that way. Um, when I was in college, I would binge on this certain kind of cookie and it came in box of 20. I would leave my dorm, go down the street to the Dwayne Reed drugstore, buy a box of 20 and telling myself, I'm just going to have one or two. Well, in my brain for all these data points, Janet says she's going to have one or two, but ends up eating the whole box and more. Janet says she's going to have one or two, ends up eating an entire box and getting sick. All these data points. So I'm about to go and buy my box of cookies and honestly, just have one or two because I think I can. And my memory gra grabs the data points, generates a thought to run across the bridge. Danger, stop. You're not going to be able to eat one or two. You're going to eat the whole box. You're going to be miserable. Don't do it. Except unlike with sunburns and cats, the bridge is broken and the thought can't get across. So the mental twist is, this time I can just have one and stop. Or this time I can eat the whole box, but I'll be able to start again tomorrow, even though there was never a tomorrow where I could start. Mental twist. My brain doesn't work like other people's when it comes to food. And it says, if he's an alcoholic, he will understand you. If we're compulsive eaters, we get that mental twist. So it says, okay. If you're satisfied, he's a real alcoholic, real compulsive eater. Talk about the hopelessness. It's like, why? Aren't we supposed to give people hope? Well, as I said, I sat around the rooms of OA for about six or seven years, and people would say, don't worry, it'll get better. Just keep coming. It'll get better. They were well-intentioned, but they were wrong. It did not get better. When I first started, I was in high school. I was making myself throw up, I don't know, maybe twice a week. Six or seven years later, never leaving OA, I was throwing up up to six times a day. It did get worse. It was hopeless. And no one sat me down and said, you are hopeless. And unless you do something, you are not going to get better. So it continues. It says, talk about the alcoholism or compulsive eating as an illness, a fatal malady. Talk about the conditions of body and mind which accompany it, which accompany it. I thought that's what it was, but no, the ailments, the ill conditions of the body and mind are like side dishes to the main problem, which is a rotten spiritual condition. There was something wrong with, my, with me spiritually. And it doesn't have to be all, you know, 
church, synagogue, you know, mosque, anything like that. That's not what they're talking about. Um, in our book on page 14, it says the way to in enlarge our spiritual life is to work and self-sacrifice for others. And that's what was missing. My life was all about me. So it says, we talk about the hopelessness. It says we can do it because we offer a solution. And it says, let him ask you what happened. And it says, stress the spiritual feature freely. So we don't just say, oh, I got on a good food plan and it worked. We say something to the effect that I surrendered. I cleaned up my past. I endeavor to help others. And when I do that, God keeps me protected. And of course, that will lead to a lot of questions, but that's good. We want questions. I've heard people say, you're not supposed to ask questions. It's like, don't say, yeah, but say, yeah, yes, ma'am. And I say, no, ask questions. Our book says, God gave us brains to use. Ask questions. I tell my sponsees when they listen to a podcast, you know, I always want to hear what questions do you have? Questions are good. Unless the question is, why do I have to do it? I don't want to. Um, but questions about, you know, what? why spiritual? Why do I have to recover spiritually? What does that mean? That's okay. We can, you know, those are great questions. And the beauty is if someone's asking me those questions, when I answer it, I'm not just telling them, I'm telling myself. I hear it when I help other people in a way that I would never hear it if I just sat down with a book to read. That's why we're supposed to help others. It's just like we're wired that way, that we get the information by helping others. So it says, okay, what if the guy's like an agnostic, atheist, says, I don't believe in God. We can tell them, you don't need my concept. You can choose any conception you like provided it makes sense to him. So it has to make sense to him. Now, I will tell you, if someone says, well, my higher power is a water bottle and that makes sense to me, I would go out on a limb and say, no, it, it can't make sense to you because you could throw the water bottle away. You could smash it. You could drink all the water and then there's no water in it. Like it's gonna end up in landfill. So it doesn't make sense. But again, if someone's concept is, different than mine, they're a different religion or they're no religion, it's fine. They say the main thing is that he's willing to believe in a power greater than himself and power with a capital P and that he live by spiritual principles. What are spiritual principles? Honesty, unselfishness, placing the welfare of others ahead of myself, self-sacrifice, this book is full of them. And Karen M, I don't think she's on tonight. She once went through the big book and made a list of all the spiritual principles in the text section of the book. And so they are on our website. And Denise, can you post them, please? Um, so you can look up and find spiritual principles to, to start practicing in our home. Um, okay, so, and it says like, okay, you're gonna talk about God. And what if the person is really religious and says, how come I'm so religious and I can't get it? And that was me. Um, and someone said to me, if you have such a great relationship with God, why are you still binging? And I, I couldn't answer that. So I may have had belief. 
I always believed in God, but I was a practical agnostic. It made no difference in my life. Even though I, you know, followed a religion, it made no difference to my life. And they tell us why. Faith alone is insufficient to be vital, to be alive. Faith must be accompanied by self-sacrifice and unselfish constructive action. But of course, faith alone is insufficient. If I were diabetic and I believed in insulin, but I never injected it in, the, in my arm, well, no one would tell me that my belief in insulin was good enough. We have to have faith. We have to have self-sacrifice and we have to have surrender to our belief in God. So that means I think, okay, God, what would you have me do in this situation? And, you know, I have a friend who hears God audibly. I do not. Um, sometimes I'll get a sense of something to do, but I think always when we want to um, exercise our faith, a question we can always, always ask ourselves is, what does love look like in this situation? What does love look like in this situation? And then we can't go wrong. We may make a mistake, right? We may um, enable our kids instead of setting a boundary, but our hearts will be right. And I believe that God is like this wonderful cosmic GPS. If I go down a wrong, wrong way, but I'm tuned in to listen to the GPS, I will get rerouted and on the right path again quickly. So page 94, it says, we tell them what to do, the program of action, self-appraisal, straightening out our past and helping others. And it says, it's important for him to realize your attempt to pass this on is a vital part in your own recovery. He may be helping you more than you're helping him. We sponsor because if we don't, we lose the immunity against compulsive eating that we got as we were working the steps. It's really important that we keep doing that. And it says, suggest how important it is to the newcomer and the not so newcomers that he place the welfare of others ahead of his own. So what does that mean to place the welfare of others ahead of our own? Well, I guess it means, I don't know, if I'm at the store buying something and there's only one left and there's someone else who I know wants it, I let the other person have it. Maybe it means I don't take the last seat on the Titanic. Um, it means that if I come up to a parking spot the same time as someone else, maybe I let the other person have the parking spot. Um, if I'm with friends and we all came in a car together and the parking meter has run out and someone's got to run out in the freezing cold and put a quarter in the meter, maybe I'm the one to volunteer to do that. But I'm moving to North Carolina, so I won't have to do that anymore. Um, so the point is that we look to do self-sacrifice. By definition, self-sacrifice means I'm giving up something I want in order to help someone else. For me, the main things that I would give up, time to just like watch TV, read a book, or sleep. The, you know, self-sacrifice. And it says, okay, your candidate, your potential sponsee, may give reasons why he need not follow all the program, may rebel. And it says, don't contradict. Just say, you know what? I wouldn't have made any progress if I had done that. 
and it says, lend him a copy of the book. And then that's it. It says, page 95, give him a chance to think it over. So it says it's a mistake often to proceed at once. And so what I usually do is if someone asks me to sponsor her, I'll give her something to do to see that, you know, I mean, if she never calls me back, it means for sure she wasn't willing to go to any length. If she does call me back and, and has done the work and we go over it and we've had a conversation and she still wants me to sponsor her, I'll say, well, okay, here's the things that I require all my sponsees to do. Things to build a relationship with God and to get involved in the fellowship and move through the steps. And if after that, she still says she wants to work with me, I say, why don't you take a night and think it over and let me know tomorrow. Okay, give her time. Um, and it says, we don't talk to anyone from a moral or spiritual hilltop. I may have been recovered for longer. All it means is that, that I got on the bus a few stops before the next person, but we're all on the same bus going to the same place. Um, and just says, lay out the kit of spiritual tools for his inspection. That's it. Here's what this program offers. If you want to do it, I'm willing to help you and put in the time to work with you. And it says, always offer friendship and fellowship. Even if the person says, I don't want to work with you. I don't either. I don't want to work this program or yeah, I found someone I like better. I want someone else to sponsor me. We're still friends. We're still in the fellowship together. Then um, a paragraph I think is really important, page 95. If he's not interested in your solution, if he expects you to act only as a banker for his financial difficulties or a nurse for his sprees, you may have to drop him until he changes his mind. Okay, guys, this is not saying that if someone eats off their food plan, page 95 in the big book tells me I'm supposed to drop him. They're talking now about someone who you've had an initial conversation with and doesn't want to continue, says they're not willing to do it. Um, I feel pretty strongly based on chapter three and in the chapter two wise, page 120, that we are not supposed to drop people just because they pick up. If they're not willing to do the work, okay, that's different. But if they're doing the work and they pick up, we are there to help them because if they're doing all this work and they pick up, they probably feel awful, awful. We don't want to kick a man when he's down. We want to be helpful and help the person find out. Remember Jim in chapter three, it says he got drunk half a dozen times in rapid succession. It says each time we reviewed with him what happened. And then what happened? He got drunk a seventh time. And then after that, I believe he never got drunk again. Remember, it says 50% get sober right away. 25% get sober after some relapse. And I think a lot of us who've had, you know, some decent recovery can raise our hands and say, you know what? We're sober. We're abstinent after some relapse. So we don't want to kick someone when they're down. And, um, if you're not sure, find someone who's been around a while, get with them and just find out how can I help this person? Or if that's you who's still struggling, get with someone who's been around a while and say, okay, help me. 
I don't understand why I'm struggling. Okay, we are here to help each other, not drop each other the minute something gets hard. Okay. So it says, if you guys sincerely interested, ask him to read this book. So we want to make sure people are familiar with this work. Um, beautiful line, if he is to find God, which is the solution to our problem, right? The desire must come from within. There's something in us that says, not that I want to, no one comes around here because they say, I want to find God. We come around because we can't stop eating. Um, but there has to be something that says, okay, I'm willing to do this. It says, but if he wants to do it another way, that's fine. Page 96, it says, if he doesn't want to do it, keep going. You are sure to find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what you offer. And I think what makes someone eager, they're desperate. I have found that when someone says like, I can't take it anymore, you know, I'm desperate, I'm at the end of my rope. Those are the people who are usually willing, not always, but usually willing to do whatever it takes. And it says, don't chase someone who doesn't want to. We're not supposed to beg them like, come on, please. I know you don't wanna, you know, make three phone calls a day or whatever, but please, your life will be so much happier. Uh-uh, we don't do that. It says, we don't waste time with people who aren't willing to do the work. We go find someone else we wanna work with. And it says, once someone has read this volume, and says he's prepared to go through with the 12 steps, then we can give him advice. And it says, you know, gives us some practical things we can tell him. Some of these apply, I think, more to alcoholics, but they say, make sure he's not trying to impose upon you for money, connections, or shelter. Permit that and you only harm him. Um, I think connections is really important. Sometimes a person wants to have a sponsor, not because they want to be guided through the work and get a relationship with God, but because they think if I have this sponsor or this really good sponsor, I'm going to like get it by osmosis. Well, no, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. The job of a sponsor is to put a newcomer's hand in the hand of God. That's a sponsor's job. If someone doesn't want that and they just want a connection to feel warm and fuzzy, it may work for a little bit, but at some point it's got to change. And page 97, it tells us what we have to do of responsibilities not to avoid. And they are hardcore. They say, no, 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 a kindly act every now and then isn't enough. You have to be the good Samaritan. So for those of you who are interested, the parable of the Good Samaritan is in the New Testament of the Bible, Luke chapter 10, verse 23, it starts. So the Good Samaritan is a guy who saw a guy, another guy on the side of the street who'd been beaten up by robbers. And he took him, he put him on his own horse. So he had to walk. He cleaned his wounds. He gave him clothes. He took him to an inn and asked the innkeeper to watch him while he was away on business and paid for him. So basically it cost the Good Samaritan time, money, inconvenience, discomfort, because he had to walk, because he gave this guy his horse, major self-sacrifice. I mean, here it tells us what we have to do. Um, a drunk may smash the furniture in your home or burn a mattress. 
you may have to administer a sedative. Now, again, I don't think this generally happens with compulsive eaters, but if I'm going in my pool as much as I want or watching as much Netflix as I would want, I'm not I'm not doing enough self-sacrifice. Our book tells us we should that we spend much of our spare time doing this kind of work, helping others. Well, what's much? I think you know we all have to decide that. But I think after we take away our work, our family time, our sleep, our hygiene, our exercise, you know what we need to do for ourselves, um, we've got a block of spare time left, and much of it is supposed to be spent helping others. Okay, and then it gives us just some random advice. It says, here's advice for someone who's in a family where maybe a family member isn't doing well, is an alcoholic, a compulsive eater, or just not doing well. It says, should the family accept and practice spiritual principles, there's a much better chance that the head of the family will recover. And even if he continues to drink, the family will find life more bearable. So it tells me that if I practice spiritual principles, the other people in my house can get better. Well, why? Well, first, the atmosphere will be better. You know, I won't be contributing to a highly charged negative atmosphere. They'll be more calm. And I've invited God in. So, boy, if, you know, I'm calm and I've invited God in, miracles can happen. And it says, even if he continues to drink, the family will find life more bearable. We develop patience. Um, we lose the demand to control situations and we trust our God with the outcomes. And they tell us for the type of person who's willing to get well, little charity in the ordinary sen sense of the word is needed. That it says job or no job, wife or no wife, we don't recover as long as we place dependence on other people ahead of dependence on God. So my recovery is not dependent on circumstances. You know, we've all been to OA meetings where we've said, or been guilty of saying ourselves, I ate compulsively because dot, dot, dot. And there was always a reason. It was like a lousy boss, a lousy husband, lousy kids, you know, something wrong somewhere. It was circumstance. There's only one reason we eat compulsively. And that's because there's something wrong with our spiritual condition. And they say, here's the sponsor's job, page 98. Burn into the consciousness of every man that he can get well regardless of anyone. The only condition is that he trusts God and clean house. That's really what this program is about. Trusting and relying on God, clearing away the wreckage of our past. And then it tells us some ways to act in a family. That's pretty interesting, right? They're not saying, here's some ways you have to be on a food plan. Equally important to sticking to a food plan, finding a food plan is how we act in our homes. So a couple things it tells us, bottom of 98. One, we concentrate on our own spiritual demonstration. Argument and fault finding are to be avoided like the plague. Okay, I remember how much I avoided any situation that might possibly make me in contact with COVID, you know, when it first came out before I was vaccinated. Like the plague, 
What do we avoid? Argument and fault finding. That means we don't tell anyone what they're doing wrong unless it's something dangerous, right? If you have a husband and he's bathing the baby and he walks out of the room and leaves the baby by herself, yeah, that we can, you know, that, that we can indulge in a little fault finding there. But that's generally not what happens. And it says we have to do it for months if any results are to be expected. So if I expect to stop binging, I have to stop arguing and I have to stop finding fault. And then a beautiful promise. The effect on a man's family is sure to be great. And what happens? An atmosphere of helpfulness and friendliness when I admit my own defects. This happened time and again for me with my teenage son, right? He would say, mom, you did blah, blah, blah. And I would say, you're, Dan, I'm, I'm really sorry. And then as soon as I did, he would say, no, you're good. It's okay. Like, instead of me saying, what are you crazy? Like, I didn't, it's like, Daniel, you know, if, if I did something that offended you, I'm sorry. No, you're good. Diffusing the situation. I don't need to be right. Um, and it tells us we have to be sober, right? Not picking up our substance, sober, calm, considerate, thinking of others and helpful, doing for others, regardless of what anyone says or does. And it tells us if we fall below the standard, we must try to repair the damage immediately, lest we pay the penalty by a spree. So there's a promise. I will binge if I indulge in arguing and fault finding and cause wreckage in my home. I am guaranteed to binge. Um, okay, so again, 99, it says, let no one say he can't recover unless he has his family back. Remind the prospect, we remind ourselves, our recovery isn't dependent on people or circumstances, but only on our relationship with God. And then my second favorite part of the book, um, page 100, it says, if you persist walking in the path of spiritual progress, remarkable things will happen. When we look back, we realize that the things which came to us when we put ourselves in God's hands were better than anything we could have planned. Follow the dictates of a higher power and you will presently live in a new and wonderful world no matter what your present circumstances. You know, I was thinking today about the only time in my life when I took um, medicine for depression, it was for a week. It was after I'd had like a double miscarriage. I was pregnant with twins, I lost one, and then shortly after I lost the other. And to me, that was, um, like I said, the only time in my life I've been on um, medication for depression for about a week or so I needed it. Like that was a low point. But looking back, I think if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't have pursued adoption and I wouldn't have had my two kids I have now. Um, my daughter is home now helping us pack up and I cannot imagine life without the children I have. When I look back, I mean, at the time, right, when I was lying on the couch after the miscarriage, if you would have told me this, like, Janet, you know, in a year or so, you're going you're gonna to go over to Ukraine and you're going to get a beautiful baby girl. And then a year later, you're going to go back and you're going to get a beautiful boy. Um, but the things that come to us when we put ourselves in God's hands were better than anything we could have planned. And if I remember right, even back then, 
I put the situation in God's hands. Thank God I was in recovery and I could put the situation in hands and just trust. Um, okay, bottom of 100, it says, okay, if assuming we're spiritually fit, we can do all sorts of things alcoholics aren't supposed to do. We can go where liquor is being served. Um, so, right at the beginning, maybe we can't even go to the grocery store by ourselves. Then we can go and say, gosh, I don't even know where the candy aisle is in my grocery store. We change. And it says that, you know, some people are told, some people say, don't have any liquor in your house. Some people say, it's fine. I can have it for my non-alcoholic friends. And says, we don't argue this question, right? We've resigned from the debating society, just like the people who say no one should ever have wheat. And the people who say, I eat whole wheat bread every day and I'm fine. I have no opinion. I make it a point to have no opinion on anyone's food plan except my own and my sponsees. They tell us on page 101 that if we're spiritually fit, we can go anywhere and do anything. If we can't, we still have an alcoholic mind. And what I would say is if you're new, you probably do have an alcoholic mind still or part of an alcoholic mind. So, you know, it's probably if you, I don't know, you're out shopping and you need to use the bathroom. Don't go into the Haagen-Dazs to use the bathroom, right? We want to use common sense in this area. Um, but again, if we have an alcoholic mind, nothing can stop us. I heard a woman in OA say she went to a rehab for eating disorder and she sent herself a candy gram. If we want it, we're going to get it. So what we need to do is work these steps because it tells us once the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. Mentally, we will no longer have the alcoholic or the compulsive eating mind. Page 102, it tells us our job, and that's to be at the place where we can be of maximum helpfulness to others. And 103, it says, we we don't show intolerance or hatred of drinking as an institution. And I crossed out that word drinking and I wrote the word sugar. We are not like, you know, sugar, anti-sugar fanatics. That's not what this is about. It's just, you know, certain foods, ingredients, behaviors, whatever, don't agree with me and I can't do it. That's all this is about. And it says, we are not witch burners. What is a witch burner? That's saying, if you're not like me, you're bad. We don't do that. It says we don't have a spirit of intolerance because that might repel alcoholics whose lives could have been saved had it not been for such stupidity. So they're telling me I can be stupid about this and it can have a bad effect. Someone won't recover. And they finish off by telling us that our problems are of our own making. Bottles were only a symbol. Food is only a symbol. If I'm in the food, it means, again, there's something wrong with my soul. And it ends with telling us we have stopped fighting anybody or anything. Of course, we can stop fighting anybody or anything, because when we work this, we learn and we really believe and know that God's got our back. He can remove the food obsession and he can just, again, page 100, give us a life beyond anything we could have planned ourselves. And if you're new and you think that's not possible, 
get around with some of us who've been around a while, and you will see that it's not only possible, this is a miracle that's guaranteed for all of us who work it. And with that, I pass. Thanks.